Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. Tuning in to Truth Be Told, this will be our last episode before the end of the year, especially considering today is the 31st that I'm recording this, and I'll probably put it up tonight. So many of you will probably actually be listening to this after the new year. Um, I thought about waiting until well after um, the new year had gone by, just because I'd already put one episode out this week, but I figured um, I have a lot of stuff coming up really soon that kind of could just use my full attention, and this was something that I had been studying for a bit and was just excited to get out, so I figured why not just throw another one out there. I'd also like to say that I'm trying to keep things a little bit shorter lately, um, about half hour episodes or so. Some have been about 15 minutes, but this one might go a little bit longer. I'm not exactly sure yet. It just depends on how long it takes me to get through the material. Um, but I think it's one that uh, hopefully is interesting to you and doesn't feel terribly long. So if you're one of those that likes longer podcasts, then this one's for you. And if you're not, I hope uh, you find it interesting and easy to follow so that it doesn't seem long anyways. That'd be good. And today we're going to be talking about faith, or at least aspects of faith. And um, very specifically, we're going to be talking about whether or not our faith can limit God. I think sometimes we can go through certain scriptures, or I know I've heard this from some people, um, where certain scriptures will point to the fact that maybe faith limited Christ's ability to do miracles. And so it stands to reason that if that's true, then our faith limits God in some way. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit whether or not that's true, and going through a bunch of Christ's miracles to kind of look at this theory and just see what the Bible has to say about it. Now, if I were to go up to most people and just ask them the question, does your faith limit God? I think most Christians would probably be uncomfortable answering yes to that, because we have this understanding that God is all-powerful and that we are less than him. So the idea that we can somehow limit God is almost taboo. And that's fine. That's okay. I think that's a good thing, a good solid stance to have. But sometimes when we then read scripture and it appears as if our faith is limiting Christ uh, through some of his miracles, we can start to hold both beliefs that no, we cannot limit God. And yes, God is limited by our faith. We can hold those both at the same time without really realizing that they're contradictory ideas. And this might seem confusing. It might seem like a no-brainer. Obviously, we can't limit God, right? But as we go through some of these examples, I think you'll see where some people start to get this idea or maybe even realize that you have this idea inadvertently. And people will often point to things, um, examples of miracles where Christ says that their faith has made them well. An example of this would be like the leprous Samaritan in Luke chapter 17. Um, We'll just go there real quick. Why not? I have all the scriptures pulled up. Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11, says, Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. 
And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were they not found, or were they not any found who had returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. And so people will take this scripture and say, because Christ isn't saying here, the power of God has made you well, but he kind of points to this person's faith, there must be some link between what Christ does and the faith uh, in the person that's receiving the healing. And there's a lot of scriptures like this in Mark chapter 10. There's another one where there's a blind man uh, on Jesus's way to Jericho or near Jericho. And the blind man calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is in Mark 10, uh, verses 46 to 52. I won't read the whole thing. But basically, he perpetually asks Christ for his attention and then asks him to heal him. And Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well, in verse 52. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So these are just two examples, but there are honestly a number of them in the New Testament where... Christ does highlight the faith of a person um, being in direct correlation to the wellness or the miracle that they receive. So this is what people point to and they say, clearly there's some connection here. And I would not deny that. I would never say there's no connection between faith and healing or faith and miracles or faith in God working in your life. I would just stop short of saying that um, God is reliant on our faith. And maybe from these examples alone, you would too. Um, it does, I think we can, we can read this and one person can conclude that clearly faith and miracles are directly related without having to say that God is limited by the faith that we have. But there's other verses um, that seem to point to this a little bit more. And these include things like Mark chapter 6, where Christ goes back home to Nazareth and I'll read that in Mark 6, verse 1, it says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5, Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So this phrasing here, he could do no mighty work there. That is what people will point to and say, See, there is proof now that Christ could not work because of the lack of faith of people in his hometown of Nazareth. So that was kind of a long roundabout introduction, but that is what we're going to be looking into today. Is it possible that Christ is limited by our faith or God is limited by our faith? Because obviously there is a connection between faith and God working, but we're going to kind of try and figure out what is that. And the first proof I'd like to point to for the fact that faith does not limit God or lack of faith does not limit God are examples of miracles that Christ does where 
it's very clear that the faith of the individual that has the miracle done to them is not really relevant. And I know that might be a kind of weird way to phrase that. I think you'll see what I mean as I, as I go through these. The first one we're going to look at is the centurion servant in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, I'm not going to read it, but I'll just go through basically what happens briefly. So there's a centurion in Capernaum, and he has a sick servant, and he hears that Christ is there, and he sends an elder of the Jews to Christ to plead with him to come and heal the servant. Now, first of all, this is already an interesting situation because centurions were typically not best of friends with the Jews, but also the Jews were not typically best of friends with Christ. So it's kind of a, a weird chain here from Gentile centurion, or he was probably um, a God-fearer is what they would have called him, but he is friends of these Jews, and he sends an elder of the Jews to Christ to plead that he'll come and heal his servant. But then, because he understands that Christ as a Jew is not supposed to go into the house of a Gentile, so the centurion explains to him that he understands that he could heal him from a, or heal his servant from afar. And Christ looks to the centurion and says, or points towards the centurion at least, and says that he has more faith than he's seen even in all of Israel. So it's not the faith of the sick person who is being called into question at this point. Another example of this can be seen in Mark chapter 2. I probably won't read it again um, just because it's a long section, but Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12, where Jesus is in Capernaum, and he's uh, inside a house, and people are starting to gather there, and it gets very full, and some friends bring their paralytic friend to Jesus, and they lower him through the roof, and in this section, the man is paralyzed, so it's not that he's not aware and of, of what's going on. He could have had faith in Christ at this point, but instead, here we see in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. So he's looking at the faith of the friends that uncovered the roof and lowered their friend through, not the faith of the paralytic himself. So that's just another example. And then even further from that, you could look at Mark chapter 5, where Jesus heals the demoniac. And I am going to read this one just because it's... A really fascinating story. It's it's a long section, but um, you got to read some of these and not just assume people have read them before. But Mark chapter 5, verse 1 says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. Verse 5, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine were feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about two thousand. 
and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So in this case, if you want to say that the faith um, is being drawn from the man or the faith is being measured from the man, well, then you'd have to say that this man also isn't in his right mind. So is Christ utilizing the faith of the man, even though his mind's not there? Or is he utilizing the faith of thousands of demons inside of the man? Where is the faith coming from that Christ is looking to in order to perform this miracle? So I think it's pretty safe to say that Christ is not relying on the faith of these people to carry out the miracle. Now you could still affirm that maybe he's relying on the faith of someone, but then you have to answer who? Because at this point, you're making faith the source of Christ's power. And if that's true, then you have to ask, who does he draw that power from? I think um, another example we could look to is Lazarus being raised from the dead to start to question, where does this faith come from? If Jesus is looking to the faith of a person in order that he might accomplish a miracle, let's look at this in John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Um, the story starts in essentially verse 1 to about 44, but we won't read that whole thing. I'll just kind of go through it. But in John chapter 11, give me a second to get there myself. It says, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. So these are friends of Jesus. And um, Jesus explains to his disciples that Lazarus is sick. But he says in verse 11, these things he said. And after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Verse 14 says, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So that's an important part. It says that you may believe. Then later on, he um, travels there and he, he gets to the place and he sees Martha and Martha says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into the world. And then they keep on going. So here it seems like at least Martha believes, right? The disciples already were saying, okay, well, he's dead. And he says, well, I'm glad this happened that you might believe. So they don't believe, but Christ is glad it happens. So they might believe. Then he gets to Martha and we go through this whole conversation. It seems like, okay, Martha seems to believe. Then he meets Mary and she's weeping. He says, where have you laid him? Um, and then here in verse 38, it says, then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench for he's been dead four days. So even if we want to point to the fact that Martha believes in Christ, there's still some hesitation there in that she doesn't understand what Christ is going to do. She doesn't fully believe that he's going to 
raise her brother from the dead, even though it kind of seemed like she was leaning that way. In this verse here, we see she's trying to correct Christ and say, no, he's dead. It stinks in there. We're not opening the tomb right now. So if you want to say that Mary or Martha had faith, then you kind of have to answer, well, then why is she leading Christ away from the tomb rather than saying, oh, good, he's going to raise him up. So I don't, I don't know that we can rely on the disciples' faith or Martha's faith for the idea that Christ is drawing faith from them in order to do this miracle. That just doesn't seem to make sense. And then if you want to point to the crowd, there are a lot of doubters in the crowd as well. John points to this actually being one of the key um, stories that lead people to wanting to put him to death. It's something that they can't quite rectify in their minds, kind of freaks them out a little bit, and it leads to the crucifixion, at least in John's perspective of what happened here in his gospel message. But even if in this story you want to say, well, someone had to believe, and you can't prove that there's no faith anywhere for Christ to do work, I would point you back to even just creation itself. At that point, no one existed, so whose faith did Christ draw on for him to be able to create the world? Whose faith was God reliant upon for everything to begin in the first place? I, I don't see that there's anybody existing to have faith in order for them to supply this power to God. So not only do I think this is a flawed idea, but I think there are stories you can point to where it um, doesn't seem like Christ is reliant on any one person. But additionally, if you look to stories like the one where... Um, the woman is healed from the flow of blood. This happens in Luke chapter 8 as well as Mark chapter 5. And I'm not going to go through that story, but it's fairly familiar to most people. A woman has a flow of blood for 12 years and no physician can heal her. She goes and touches the hem of Christ's robe and is healed. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? Well, in this, it says he felt power go out of him. If it were faith that were a power source for Christ, then it would make sense that he felt power go into him and then maybe back out of him. But that's not what Christ says. So faith is not some magic power that Christ is drawing on in order that he can do miracles. So I think if we start to have this idea, even though that, that verse does say that when he went to Nazareth, he couldn't do miracles because of their unbelief, I think we have at best a contradiction and at worst a misunderstanding in scripture because a contradiction um, is only a perceived contradiction i think not an actual contradiction now let's go to mark chapter 9 and read one more account where i think it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that christ is not limited by our our lack of faith mark chapter 9 starting in verse 14 says and when he came to his disciples he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who, was a mute, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. O faithless generation. That is such an interesting phrase that he says there. He's pointing to a lack of faith. 
And yet, he says, bring him to me. He is going to do something about it. Verse 20, Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind could come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I think there's not a single person in the New Testament that we could probably relate to more than this father of the son when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I think this is such an interesting story in general because I've heard people even point to this as kind of a precursor to the crucifixion because Christ is here um, and it seems like he fails, right? So this immediately he walks up and the spirit convulses the boy and he falls to the ground not nearly as respectful as some of the demons we've seen in other uh, stories of the gospel. And then Christ asks the father for more information regarding what this boy is going through. Then he even casts the demon out and it convulses and it um, seems to kill the boy. So this seems like Christ is almost having trouble casting out this spirit. Christ almost appears a little bit weak in this miracle. In other ones, before Christ even comes up close at all the demons are throwing themselves at his feet and begging him for mercy in this one it seems like there's a little bit more fight but that's exactly parallel to the picture of the crucifixion where at the moment when christ seems his weakest that's when he asks you to believe and i think that's really really interesting here as soon as the spirit convulses him then jesus brings up belief and he says anything is possible if you believe and then the father admits that he is not fully believing, but that he wants to fully believe. And I think we can all fall into this so, so easily. We all have this dichotomy inside us, this contradiction inside of us. But it's very clear from this, it does not limit Christ's power. And we have examples of this all throughout the gospel, I think. In Mark chapter 4, Christ calms the storm for the disciples, but he asks them where their faith was. But he still calms the storm. It's not like he couldn't do it because they didn't have faith. In Matthew 14, Peter walks on the water with Christ for a little bit, but then he falls in because he's afraid uh, for his life because of the storm. Notice he didn't disbelieve that he could walk on the water. He believed long enough for him to get out of the boat, to take a few steps, but he was afraid for his life because of the storm. So he had belief and he had disbelief. Christ asked where his faith was, though. Christ was still there to welcome Peter back into the fold, even though he was clearly lacking faith during the first and second storms. So it's not Christ that was limited by Peter's belief. It was Peter who was limited by Peter's belief. Peter was the one who experienced fear. Peter was the one who 
got all wet in the water. Peter was the one who felt shame and didn't know how to return to Christ after disbelieving and even um, denying him so many times. But it wasn't Christ that was limited. It was Peter that was limited. So the minute we start believing that our faith somehow enables God, we put ourselves above God. And God is not like Tinkerbell, where if you just believe hard enough and clap loud enough, then he'll continue to live and continue to do work. God is all-powerful. And his power extends way farther than your lack of belief could ever limit him by. So don't be afraid of limiting God when you have a lack of faith. Be more afraid of limiting yourself and limiting what God can do for you. So what about this first story then where Jesus goes to his hometown and it says he can't do miracles because of the unbelief of the people there? Well, I read a really good article in Christianity Today by Jeff Peabody. The article is called Why Jesus Couldn't Do Miracles in His Hometown. Excellent article if you'd like to check it out. And he says here, um, he points to a uh, Christian commentator. His name is William Lane. And it says, when Mark says Jesus could not perform any mighty works there, he isn't suggesting the Lord was incapacitated in some way. Instead, could not is one of principle more than of power. Working miracles in the absence of faith was impossible because it would have directly contradicted Christ's message. And I think that's that's a really cool take. He goes on to talk about how the people of Nazareth were full of skepticism and outright hostility, but that in that Jesus chose not to do miracles. Whereas if it were one of us, we probably would have gone in the opposite direction. We would have probably sought their approval. But Christ didn't come to sell the gospel to people. He didn't come to exchange his good news of salvation for your faith. Now, he does ask for your faith, and we should want to have faith. We should pray to increase in faith, and we should try to increase in faith. But this is not something where suddenly we become the catalyst for how God works. We do not become the reason that God is able to do amazing things. So if you've ever had any concern about how much faith you lack or that you lack faith at all, understand that you are not limiting God by that lack of faith. You're limiting yourself in that lack of faith. You are limiting God's work in your life by what you allow him to do for you. Well, thank you as always for listening in. I appreciate it. It didn't take me nearly as long as I thought it would, which is great, but hopefully you found some of what I said today a little bit clarifying. I know when we read that section where it talks about Jesus going to Nazareth and being unable to perform miracles because of their disbelief, that can kind of clash with our understanding of an all-powerful God. But hopefully now we can see that there is no contradiction here. Our faith does not limit God. It only limits ourselves. So keep on listening. Really appreciate that. Anything you could do to share or support this podcast would really mean a lot to me. And until next time, keep on thinking critically about your Bibles. Thanks, guys.